LFG people, hello and welcome to episode 164 of Blockchain Insider. My name is Mauricio Magaldi. Now, this is where usually I hand it off to my co-host, Kai Sheffield, who is unfortunately feeling a little bit under the weather today. So, Kai, we're going to move on, but yeah, man, get well soon. We miss you. Stay well. So let's take a look at the stories that we'll dive right in. So we're going to talk a little bit about the U.S. senators introducing a new crypto bill with a bipartisan crypto bill in the U.S. outlining a sweeping plan for the future rules of crypto. We'll also take a look at how the crypto community is receiving the new actions of UK's regulator FCA, who starts uh, finally getting in with the program. We'll also talk about uh, the uh, Scorsese producer Niels Joel's KinoDAO, who's using the NFTs to fund indie films. And I'm not going to do this alone. I have two very fantastic guests with me, Gura Kiwana, 11FS product manager and crypto nerd. How are you doing today? Hi, good. Been knee deep in institutional DeFi stuff today, uh, work, but uh, nice to take a break for a minute and talk about the news. Absolutely. And my friend, Luca Prosperty, Landing Oversider, MakerDAO. Welcome to the show, Luca. Hi, Mauricio. Thanks. Uh, not a relaxing week for me as well, being on the DAO front of crypto. Good, good. Absolutely. So we'll jump right in and uh, we'll know a little bit more about what both of you are doing across the program as well. So starting off with this new U.S. bill, it's a bipartisan bill and it's outlining a future for crypto in the country. The wide-reaching bipartisan crypto bill emerged last week when U.S. Senator Cynthia Loomis, Republican from Wyoming, and Kristen Gillibrand, a Democrat from New York, we're now seeking to extend a set of regulations across digital assets in the U.S. and given the industry lobbies something to chew on, right? The legislation attempts to tackle the biggest questions from taxation to the behavior and loss for stablecoins, small-scale payments, uh, the reach and jurisdiction of regulators, and including some changes in the role of the CFTC the Commodity uh, Futures Trading Commission. So just so we start discussing a little bit about that, um, I'm going to hand it over to you, Luca. Um, do you think that this is going to move fast and how fast? Do you think that this going fast or slow is any good or bad for the state of the industry? I think it's yet another iteration, but I don't think it'll, it will be the final one. What I think is the regulator is getting more serious and is starting to go beyond the surface of what crypto means. And that means they will engage more and more with the, with the industry. So I'm not expecting this to go too fast. I think I'm expecting this to be just one other step in an iterative process that will go on for quite a long time. Now, hopefully it will not be rushed uh, given the, the most recent developments in crypto, because that would be a mistake. But that's a risk we, we have because ultimately the regulator wants to protect the, the consumers and the savers and rightly so. Absolutely. Good point there in terms of responding to recent events. So Guerra, do you think that um, these recent events, we even reported here about the, the whole terror disaster recently with Celsius and uh, Three Arrows Capital uh, on the news last week, do you think that the regulators are seeing this as something that they must do and therefore they're going to go for the neck? Or do you think that this is somewhat of a more chilled approach, analytical, 
that will take the time to actually get on and understand the real world implications of all of this? I think regulators are in a really, really tough position. It's a delicate balance of, you know, really trying to, what their reason of existence is to protect consumers. Um, but, you know, there's also an element of, of a little bit of control that, that sometimes creeps in. Um, so regulators are in a really, really tough position right now. And it's, and, you know, the, the way that we've historically seen regulation uh, exist kind of needs to also have a bit of a facelift and, and, and a revamp because of um, how quickly this industry is moving. So like, just to give you just an example, right? Like this bill has been introduced, yes, but it's going to take about a year. And that's like, that's like optimistic, a year to go through Congress, to go through the American legislative, like bureaucratic process before it's even like signed into law. So in a year, so, so much can change. And the way that regulators work and the way that, you know, these bills are passed and, and laws are made will likely have to, will definitely be, be tested and challenged. So, I mean, I rarely say this, but I just have a lot of empathy for the regulator today. Um, but still, still quite a progressive move. So thinking about this, right, uh, Luca, you're, you're in the very thick of it because you work with the pioneers of MakerDAO. And we're seeing a lot of questioning around the sustainability of DeFi given the recent events. And obviously, we think that um, some of what we're seeing, especially in the US side of things, is a sort of a response of the government thinking that they need to be the adults in the room. How do you, how does that transpire on the perspective of such a an important protocol such as MakerDAO in light of everything that's going on? I think, um, I mean, there is a complex question. Uh, and I, you know, Mauricio, that beyond my role at Maker or jointly with my role at Maker, I am a researcher in crypto. So for me, I'm a monetary economist and I've been in finance for 15 years. So for me, the whole stable coin or digital coin space is what fascinates me a lot. And I think it is all connected. But I think everybody's learning and also the crypto insiders are learning. Most of the people that have been working in this industry, although they, they, they think they say they've been through booms and busts, they haven't really. Because the macroeconomic, the macroeconomic background has always been very similar. So it is an evolution of the of the industry, but the macroeconomy behind it has always been pretty much that of an expansionary monetary base that could have benefited crypto and others if they got their things in place, and they did. Now I think the question comes uh, that people, even in DAOs, they need to understand that it is not about creating perfecting the mousetrap to attract more and more liquidity. It is about creating a good modular approach so that can be people and builders can build useful solutions on it. And I think that what it was great at Maker is notwithstanding the high, the high pressure we had for growth when we were seeing our siblings, Terra as well, growing uh, very fast, the DAO managed to remain very prudent. So... And there were different factions, right? I was on I was on the on the side of prudence, so it's unfortunately uh, it, that proved to be right. But others were more aggressive. But that's the nature of a democratic uh, conversation, right? I think now Maker is still trying to still trying to cope with the fact that aggressive growth is not 
is not going to be here for a while. So it is more about making sure that the, 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 the protocol is solid, and it is, that it, it has a good runway to keep paying developers and contributors um, and will be in the best position possible for the next phase of crypto, which is the one I'm more fascinated about. And I think there are a lot of conversations because this community is very, is very impatient, but I think we shouldn't, all, we shouldn't either go on the other side of freezing all the initiatives and activities because it is a it is a meme but it's actually a meme i believe in that most great things are actually built in a bear market where people when people are busy building rather than trying to find gimmicks to to become rich overnight so i think this is part of the conversations we're a maker but i think i mean the last point i wanted to say before i i, I give you the word is that it's been actually a good test you know maker has sh- shrunk together with the economy but in a very orderly way in very transparent way that probably wasn't the case for centralized black boxes like like the ones you mentioned before. Got it. No, thank you. And interestingly enough, the name of the bill is Responsible Financial Innovation Act, right? And we know that um, stemming from the crisis in 2008 with the whole moral hazard um, events, um, this became a big focus on all of the regulators. Quira, I know you keep tabs on many, many things across the world and being responsible with retail is some common theme on many of the things that you and I have spoken um, offline. Uh, So do you really think that strengthening and making regulations strict can really improve in making these institutions that are dabbing into crypto more responsible with retail? So while I agree that that Regulators are there to protect consumers, right? So to protect retail investors, people, general human beings, my mom, you, people walking down the street. I don't think that the answer or, or even, or even the gateway to like mass adoption is, is like, you know, the word you use, like tight, um, regulation. Uh, I think that this is a time for regulators to, 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 you know, watch and learn and actually engage, uh, with, the likes of MakerDAO, even um, of of DAOs that are actually a shining example of, and protocols that are a shining example of the good that could come and, and the sustainable practices that 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 have been exhibited in Web three so far. Um, I, I think that also regulation makes, you know, paves the way, or at least like opens the opens you know the floodgates, if you will, for. Uh, incumbent players so like tradfi businesses that that want to you know dip their toes into this world um a lot of you know when you speak to a lot you know even even in our jobs we speak to a lot of banks and and you know incumbent fintechs and they're kind of on the sidelines you know building center of excellence maybe uh have they have little innovation hubs within the business they're they're kind of like you know getting ready to, you know, it's like in my mind, I think of it as like someone who's playing jump rope, uh, skip rope, you know, the game of like double Dutch and they're kind of on the sidelines, like going back and forth, kind of like getting ready to jump in and start playing. Um, regulation, uh, is that invitation to start playing and to enter the space and, and basically, you know, lets them know your license or your, you know, whatever, whatever certification that you have is not a jeopardy. If you, participate in this world or if you serve your customers in this way or that way. But I don't think that's going to be achieved by strict controlling regulation. I'm just going to like also quote something that Marcia wrote this week, which is 
really around what the the future of crypto, what, what the future of crypto holds, right? And like in in that in that piece, you've talked you talked about like how there's three approaches to regulation. There's like attraction, repulsion, and control. I think when we say when we use the words tight regulation, I immediately think of repulsion and control, and that's not what what we want out of um we don't that's not what we want to see out of regulators. I think uh, there are very thoughtful ways to approach regulation in this new economy that actually, you know, factors in customers' needs or like individuals' needs, but also whilst considering sustainable um, growth uh, in, in the space as well. Got it. Yeah. I mean, my pipe dream for regulators is the what I, what we call the regulatory integration. I mean, the, the day they can really play with the industry within uh, on-chain, on, on the blockchain uh, with crypto participants, that's, that's the day where we're going to be at a level playing field, I think. So, yeah, I mean, that's kind of wraps up the, this side of the Atlantic, but we have a lot to cover on the other side of the Atlantic with the UK's FCA uh, that seems to be finally listening to the crypto industry. So uh, the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK, which is known for being very critical of digital assets, took a different approach during its first crypto sprint, which was held earlier this month. So during two days, the participants worked in mixed discipline teams to explore challenges facing the crypto industry, including how the FCA, UK's financial regulator, could support and balance innovation with the standards that protect consumers, the FCA said on its website. And the crypto sprint explored how to handle disclosing information related to issuance of crypto assets, regulatory obligations, and custody regulations. Now, interestingly enough, uh, when I joined 11FS, I think one of the first comments I gave out on the on the press was about the Royal Mint uh, issuing an NFT for whatever the reason. It wasn't really clear. It just seemed like a, a marketing gimmick, which kind of ended up uh, kind of being, because that sparked a lot of discussion across the press and, and the space. Now, FCA is known as one of these top regulators, as much as the SEC in the, in the U.S., FCA is really sought for by many other jurisdictions. So the fact that the FCA is now listening or appearing to listen to the crypto participants seems a fairly steady change in stance, but also something that the crypto natives have been asked uh, from the regulators for a long, long time, right? So this was very well received by the crypto community. Um, Luca, you being a very crypto native person representing the crypto natives uh, in today's episode. Uh, so how do you see this change in stance and what promises do you think this thing holds? Um, I mean, I am a crypto native representative and I, I think is, uh, and thank you for that, for that definition, but I spent a long, long time on the other side of the fence working in traditional institutions, right? I used to be an investment banker, Morgan Stanley, serving other banks. I used to be a consultant at Oliver Wyman. I think one of my first projects uh, back in the financial crisis was helping setting up the financial stability board for European for the European Union. And I, and I think I've, I've been around enough regulated banks, EC, sitting, like sitting on the board as observer of ECB regulated banks as well uh, in my private equity days. So I think I, I, have, I have interacted enough with, with regulators to have some kind of informed view. And I, I think it goes back to the point, I think two points I wanted to make here, like it goes back to the point we were saying before of being an iterative process. And the UK has definitely always been a bit more 
pro-business compared to our cousins on the other side of the Atlantic and uh, in trying to understand the innovations happening in, in finance, I mean, and in fintech. So that doesn't surprise me. But also, I think back in the days of, this, of the financial crisis, I remember the UK regulator and the Bank of England at the time, when they were taking over regulation of banks, they started pivoted to a macroprudential approach, which was a way to follow the money. What I mean is, instead of having a prescriptive approach ex ante, try to understand the phenomena based on where these massive flows of money and profits were going and try to understand if there was something wrong or excess risk-taking there. And I think they, 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 they remain consistent into that. Like, you know, they are seeing now this wall of money going into one direction. Uh, they cannot stop it. They just want to understand what's going on. It might be just simply a very organic phenomenon that money is going towards more efficient rails of distribution. I think that's part of that. But there is also a phenomenon of excessive risk-taking uh, that is sucking money in because it's promising profits and it's something that they want to they want to monitor, right? Because I think uh, we have we always had this phenomenon like between the before the financial crisis, money started to move into structured product, products intermediated by the by the investment banks. Then after the crisis, the investment banks were overly regulated and money started to go into the shadow banking sector. That was the, the, the kingdom of hedge funds and the likes. The hedge funds started to get more regulated and money is moving into crypto. So it's not a, it's not a new phenomenon. So you need to always be on top of that. And then in the background, a lot of money was going into tech. Tech was very different, very difficult for those type of regulators to monitor because it's a monetization of data. Uh, so they were quite... In, unsuccessful in doing that, and I, I think a lot of tech players probably abused of their position of of strength in understanding what was going on to make extraordinary profits. I mean, that's unfortunately rule of the game. But this is what they do day in day out. So I'm not I'm not surprised of seeing I, I'm seeing the FCA and the Bank of England having this approach. And I think going back to Guerra's point, I think there has to be a is is it. I would not, I mean, I'm very, I have a lot of empathy for the regulators these days because it's very difficult. On the, on the retail side, it is difficult to strike the balance, but we both want the same. I think we want protection ultimately of all uh, the participants. On the monetary side, then maybe we can touch later, but it's a different thing where I think crypto and, and central banks have a very, dif have a very different position that is going to be a bit more difficult to, uh, to reconcile. But for various reasons that we can discuss later. But I think I'm not surprised that the FCA is having this proactive stance. I think it's a testament of their, of their, the way they look at the evolution of the industry and why London is the global financial center it is ultimately. Absolutely. They, they played a big part in the FinTech development in the UK and the previous stance they held was kind of contrarian to that, which kind of felt weird for many of the people that were involved in FinTech and now are involved in crypto. Like, this change. But interestingly enough, the Crypto Sprint had the presence of Chief Executive Nikhil Rathi and uh, the head of banking at uh, Her, Maj Her Majesty's uh, Treasury, David Raw, Jessica Ruzu, uh, FCA's Chief Data Information and Intelligence Officer. So it was like serious players. And they were all, they were all participating in this like cross-functional, iter uh, iterative, interactive, practical event where problems were uh, put in front of the participants that they had to work together to achieve some form of 
consensus around how the problems should be tackled, even with people coming from uh, San Francisco, like one person from uh, Kraken. Quira, is this form of collaboration the new way to develop conducive, innovative regulation? Is this something that we should be expecting from regulators across the globe? I think right now, yeah, it makes total sense. Um, you know, what you described, this crypto sprint that happened that's now, you know, making headlines is the literal example of the regulators sitting at the table. So they finally, you know, sitting around the table with with people building in the space and like um, collaborating and understanding and I guess building that empathy bone, you know, like growing that empathy muscle. I think that this exercise you know, I, I, I'm fairly sure, like without without speaking to people who went to attended, I'm fairly sure that this exercise resulted in an expansion of people's understandings of how the space works, but also how regulation works on the other side as well, right? Like, and how you know everything. Everyone means well, right? Everyone is, and this, you know, definitely, I'm a big fan of of empathy and and actually collaborating. Everyone has this. This is a space where we cannot afford to have a zero sum outcome. So everyone needs to get along. <laughs> and if they're all at the same table, that's kind of the best way for that to happen. I think crypto experts organizing, uh, you know, a- a- attending this event um, and, you know, sharing these problem statements and working together, I, I think is the first, uh, hopefully the first of many and hopefully the first of other examples of this around the world. Like I said, a lot of incumbents are hesitant and, uh, to to enter the space and and a lot of incumbents fintech fintechs and and banks and financial services are going to be the gateway for mainstream adoption um, for crypto. So it's it's only it's only fair for them to be put at ease by um, regulators actually having a clear and thoughtful understanding of the space to basically open open that gate for them. But yeah, yeah. One one thing we've been talking about recently is because multiple regulators have different uh, stances and approaches to what crypto is, whether it's a security or a currency or something different. Um, they have different approaches to regulating crypto in general. And that creates a lot of, we can call it regulatory arbitrage. We've even discussed this uh, in an earlier episode here at the show. But just to you know, pick your brain around this, uh, both you, Agra, and, and Luca, what would be the your recommended approach to avoiding that going forward? Is this global network of central banks collaborating for common understanding and then thinking about how these things impact locally? Or does it like, is this a bottom ups approach or a top down approach? What do you believe is kind of the the sound approach other than being iterative and interactive um, to get this kind of global framework lined up? This is not going to come out easy though, right? How do you think, Ra? I, I don't think so. I think Arbitrage, the regulatory arbitrage is going to be a thing that happens no matter what we do. Like, I think that um, some jurisdictions are going to be further along than others. Um, so for example, you know, I, I keep a quite a close eye on what's happening in Africa right now. And there's definitely a big difference between what, you know, a, a quite a fragmented ecosystem already, but what different regulators are, how they're approaching crypto. And it, like I said, it's, it's, it's inevitable that, that, Firms are gonna, you know, pursue regulatory arbitrage and set up entities elsewhere, and um, you know, find various loopholes to ultimately serve their customers. I, this sounds quite pessimistic. I'm not. It's not pessimistic. It's more like 
realistic in that it's going to take time. It's going to take a long time. And, and whoever does that, um, you know, global organization, it's likely probably not going to come from governments. I think it's going to, it's going to come bottom up. Um, I think the seeing what we're seeing coming out of, out of the US and the UK, where there's quite robust policy and advocacy engagement groups, uh, let's call them lobbying groups. <laughs> um, they, we're seeing quite a coordinated front from them and they're leading the way that, that hopefully the rest of the world would follow. But I don't know, Luke, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Uh, do you, do you think that, you know, bodies like MakerDAO or, or other DAOs or other crypto native bodies are going to be the ones driving this change or is it, are we going to have to wait for governments to get on? I agree with you 100%. I think regulatory arbitrage has always been there and will always be there. I mean, it happens uh, even within blocks that are in theory pursuing the same objectives, right, politically. And, you know, I, I'm putting a lot of disclaimers here that I'm. Uh, this is my personal opinion to represent anyone, but sometimes it baffles me how is it possible that within the European Union you have tax arbitrage in Ireland, Luxembourg, or anywhere, anywhere else where we should all have one balance sheet, right? But this is the nature of the beast. Uh, everyone has a different set of incentives. They're all playing in their own favor. I mean, the UK exploded as a financial center following heavily deregulation of uh, of financial intermediation, right? So I think everybody, this is always going to be the case. And, and we see the positioning of some of those political figures in New York, in Miami, people just trying to signal this industry that they like the industry because they don't want to lose talent. Ultimately, I think like Guerra's point on Africa is interesting and fascinates me. You know, you know, Mauricio, I spent big chunk of my life in Latin America and great champions in the among the new banks exploded in Latin America also because they were benefiting from very large margins. They could never get somewhere else because they would have been completely legal in other places. So let's 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 be realistic and transparent. Uh, that also helped innovation. So I think the reason why that is the case and the, the reason why it could actually happen that a new geography is a good place for innov innovative financial institutions to emerge is there are, there are less vested interests. You know, when you are, when you are very pro-innovation in, in a city like London and New York, you're also going against the interest of incumbents. And the incumbents lobby heavily, they are protecting their positions, and so it's difficult. When you are in another, in another space where there are less incumbents or less powerful, it's easier to push for innovation. And we have seen what happened in Africa in like how the leapfrog, like the branch-based system of banking going directly into online banking. And that, that, that is an example. So I think this is, it will be interesting because different from the past, now barriers, geogra geographical barriers are not really important, right? Nobody really cares. So, I mean, for example, in MakerDAO, MakerDAO doesn't even have a legal entity. MakerDAO doesn't have a representative in any regulation. But if we want to agree, if we want to integrate with real world use cases and institutions, we will have to choose a geography um, uh, legislation or a, a regulatory body that, that is good in representing us in linking to institutional or other type of users. The difference compared to the past is like we have the menu is infinite because we are not we don't need to port a headquarter here and there we can just decide where we want to link and this decision could be based on the quality of the regulator how actually that regulator is linked with other financial uh, like other geographies etc so i think ultimately it is true that like where i said that i think the incumbents will 
will lead this innovation, but I think it's not necessarily it's based on business flows. I think I think the, the regulators will need to be receptive because otherwise they will lose a lot of business. But it, it will be interesting. I'm always who knows, but most probably the answer is not the most obvious one, which will be the, the, the location that will vehiculate most of the value going through blockchain rails in the next five to 10 years. Maybe it's Nigeria. I don't know. I'm just making names up. Maybe it's, it's Uruguay. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think whoever um, nails this really, really well is going to set the trend for the others to follow. And then it's going to obviously, obviously become something that's like a more of a global standard. Fully appreciate that. So we're going to take a break right now to hear from our sponsors and we'll be right back. How will Web3 unlock the future financial services and change the way we think about money? Our first ever Web3 report takes a deep dive into the biggest conversation taking place in finance. Unpacking tokens, stablecoins, ESG, DAOs, DeFi, regulation, and so much more. We also take a look at the opportunities it presents for your business. For crypto natives and newbies, head to 11fs.com forward slash Web3 report to download it today and get Web3 ready. This episode is brought to you by Visa, one of the world's leaders in digital payments. Crypto has opened up a new world of possibility and Visa is helping everyone take part. Visa enables commerce across their network and crypto networks through solutions like FinTech FastTrack, a quick and easy way for crypto innovators to issue payment credentials. Join us in this new money movement. Learn more at visa.com forward slash crypto. Welcome back for the second half of the show. We're going to start with uh, Scorsese producer Neil Jules Kinodow which is using NFTs to fund indie films. The producer of Martin Scorsese's The Irishman in Silence is turning to Web3 to cut out the Hollywood gatekeepers. I would call it middlemen. Last year, Joel created NFT Studios with the aim of using NFTs, the uh, non-fungible tokens, unique blockchain tokens that mean ownership over an asset, to essentially crowdfund low-budget titles. NFT Studios' films, uh, first film was a wink and a prayer, and it's proof of concept and has 10 million budget raised out of NFTs. KinoDAO is what Jewel calls a mini studio that runs itself. So in a sense, it's kind of a decentralized studio within NFT Studios, the company. And this summer, KinoDAO will release its first NFTs to help fund the future uh, film projects. Each NFT will be a membership pass, kinda granting voting powers in studio decisions, as well as other benefits like free merchandise, film festival, party tickets, um, naming film credits, etc., and even more NFTs. So kind of interesting way, I mean, we all know crowdfunding, but interesting way of adding value to NFTs. And in an era of these um, massive franchises of superheroes and Netflixes and, you know, half a billion budgets, Joel kind of believes that filmmaking has been suffering for uh, the algorithms driving more decisions than people. So NFTs should be a new way of introducing people decisions on top of what they're doing with the film industry. So how do you feel about this? I mean, Guerra, are you a film enthusiast? Do you feel that this is going to materially change how films are produced and how decisions are made in the industry? Yeah, I'm a massive film nerd. I mean, like my best friend is one of my best friends is a filmmaker. 
And it'd be kind of cool because she's quite successful now. Uh, if I could have, you know, got in with like a quarter of uh, an ETH, <laughs> like just 10 years ago uh, on, on some of her first works um, that have done quite well now. Um, but I think fundraising for films um, is, uh, there's always been people trying to do this in like in, in the web two world. Um, you know, obviously there's crowdfunding and, and GoFundMe and all that stuff. Um, but I, 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 you know, it's, it's the, but aside from the membership and, and all that, this sounds quite aspirational. Doesn't, there's, there's not really any, there's not really much of a hook, uh, for adoption by like regular people who are not in the film industry. Um, I don't know. I, I think it's, I, I'm enthusiastic. I'm, I'm excited about this, but like ultimately when it comes to entertainment, I may be, I think I'm probably in the majority. I just want to like be told what's good and then watch it or like be told, okay, put your money into, you know, invest in $20, $30, $100 into like this project uh, and maybe you'll, you'll see a return. I don't know. It's, it's back to the whole, I don't know, this whole like speculative, like NFT boom is just, I'm kind of sick of it. <laughs> I'm kind of over it, but um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's cool. And interesting. I think, I think uh, Kino Dao, um, definitely has good intentions and and I hope they they find a good following but yeah yeah I think there's um a lot of potential um but it still it speaks to this kind of duality of crypto whether it's is this uh, a ticket that offers you utility is it a part of an equity is it money you know is, do, should you expect returns on it um and it kind of plays out with the whole industry I mean filming industry is uh you know laden with um, intermediaries. So is there a way that this kind of structuring, um, Luca, would kind of cut down the middleman and make films more affordable for production and then maybe make them more, uh, more profitable as well? I am, you're asking me to adventure into a charter territory for myself because I am a, I am a mathematician and a monetary nerd and not, not a, not a media expert, but I am also a movie nerd, as all the nerds. Uh, so I, I, I love music in the movie industry, and I, and as Guerra said, I think they have good intentions, and I hope they will be successful. I mean, we have been sold this uh, dream of direct access to uh, to to the audience by the artists in the Web two era, and then we realized that the, simply this middleman became larger and more powerful and organize itself uh, to control more of that. So we all have access to everything, but the, mid the middleman is actually keeping, gatekeeping that access to, for everyone. I think it means that probably we have like, there was a positive impact on the, on the amount of production, but about was the, the system really democratized? Not really. Uh, I, I, I hope that we will go into that, that direction now. I mean, I, I see that, I see like the tokenization of content, a way you could port actually the content after it's distributed with you so that you're not necessarily kept in the hands of the, of, of the distribution channels uh, that where you will need, uh, you will need dependent from. I, I, I don't know. I, I think we need, we need to see. Uh, I, I, I think ultimately distribution of content is a very money heavy business. So the guys who do it well 
uh, and they have the firepower to do it, they just run run the show, and it will be it will be difficult to decentralize. But but we never. I, I think I'm an optimist. You know me, Mauricio. You also know that I had a personal tough life health wise. So always been an optimist. So I think that we don't. I don't want to extrapolate the failures we had we had over the last 20, 50 years forever. So I think we can do better. We already doing much, much better to 100 compared to 100 years ago. So why not? Why not continue doing so? So I, I, I think what the only thing that is a bit uh, challenging for me uh, going back, I think this is the uh, the 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 middle ground between financialization and 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 content is it is difficult. So to to, to spend money well in a value creative way, you need skills. So it's very difficult to decentralize skills. If you decentralize skills, you're pretty much decentralizing responsibility. So I think these guys that are taking the vast majority of the profits in the content industry, they're also very skilled. They know how to do a product. They know how to distribute it. Now, can we replicate that in a decentralized manner? I don't know. Probably not. So I think there's always need, there will always be a disproportionate part of the profits that is... Uh, that is allocated to those that add value with their skills. Now, it does. It has to be a fair share. It doesn't have to be an unfair share, because now probably is unfair. Like if you look at between the distribution between the. I know you are a music, musician, Mauricio. So the the, the 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 split of the pie between the content producer and the packager, it's probably unfair. So we we hope that is going to be uh, is going to be more fair than before. But there is always going to be some type of centralization around a person or an institution that know how to do their job uh, in everything, even in DAO governance. We cannot believe in like every uh, decentralizing skills. Not everybody is the same, thank God. Doesn't mean that people are, one person is better than another. It means that one person knows how to do one thing better than another in any industry. I think, and, and the whole thing about, you know, decentralizing for decentralization's sake, it's kind of Again, using tech for tech's sake, it's it's not the best purpose um, to use all of this that we're building, and there is always going to be a trade-off between the degree of network effect and decentralization and economies of scale that centralization enable, which is what we're living right now. Obviously, history is kind of pendular, so we've overly centralized in Web two. Should we ultimately and kind of extremely decentralized on the other end just because centralization is now possible, well, probably not. So I think there's uh, attempts like uh, KinoDAO will kind of point out the future as to where the balance is. And, and as you said, um, it's, it's hard to decentralize skill, but maybe with the proper incentives, you can decentralize, uh, decentralize ownership, but then rally behind a skill set that's needed with proper set of incentives when you decentralize ownership. So um, it is indeed um, early days, but I think the experiment is super valid because industry, entertainment industry in particular is ridden with um, intermediaries and making sure that the passion economy really reaches those who are passionate about things um, is uh, something um kind of interesting, which kind of segues well into our next uh, topic. Uh, we saw an announcement recently between uh, Jay-Z, the rapper, one of the probably biggest names in rapping history, uh, and Jack Dorsey, founder of Twitter and, and founder of uh, Blocks, current um, crypto uh, 
Bitcoin maximalist Jack Dorsey, uh, and they launched Bitcoin Academy in uh, Jay-Z's childhood home in Brooklyn. The Brooklyn rapper announced that both him and Jack Dorsey, Block Seal, are giving back to his childhood home by creating the Bitcoin Academy, a program to teach financial literacy. The Bitcoin Academy is a series of online and in-person classes that includes what is money and what is blockchain, two of the most interesting questions of our time. The program is open to anyone from the Marcy houses uh, and will also include a crypto kids camp uh, to provide participants with a mobile hotspot and a nominal amount of Bitcoin for hands-on learning. Instructions will be provided two evenings per week until early September and students will receive dinner. So they're going to have meals as part of the schooling as well. Both uh, Block and Jay-Z's charity staff, the Sean Carter Foundation, will help with the on-the-ground instructions. So one of the critical things for us to actually turn Web3 into something mainstream that benefits maybe not everybody, but most people, is education. Uh, I think it's, it's such a calling for us who are early in the industry to help us educate ourselves and educate others uh, and onboard them onto this, that I think this is one of the most, I, I think this is the most significant effort by Dorsey since he left Twitter over everything that he did with Bitcoin. I think focusing on education is the right thing for us as an industry. So how do you feel about this, Gura? How do you feel about a mix between one of the biggest entertainers of our time and one of the big, biggest entrepreneurs of our time to actually focus on education for this new industry? Yeah, I feel like, I, first of all, big fan of Jay-Z um, and uh, I, who I refer to as Beyonce's husband. Um, he's great. <laughs> but big fan of Jack Dorsey. I mean, he's he's Bitcoin maximalist, you know, and I have my thoughts about that. But I think this pairing is it really makes sense because, yeah, you're right. The the first, the, you know, one of the most important things we can do right now is is education first, I'd say, before we before we fix UX, before we 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 do any other building really i think educating people and getting them to like at least a base level understanding of you know crypto bitcoin is not just a speculative um asset that people use to get rich quick um and actually educating on on the utility i think education is also like it's also like the least controversial thing to do um in the eyes of regulators and and the public um you know if 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 Jay-Z and Jack Dorsey were to like you know, all of a sudden announced that they're releasing an NFT project or, or, um, uh, a wallet or something that, you know, some kind something, some building something, um, that would immediately warrant attention from obviously haters, you know, people who are like, like crypto skeptics. Right. And then also like regulators. And, uh, and that's, that's obviously, you know, there's a time and place for it, for that kind of stuff. But I think education is, is like, it's the, it's the first, it's, it's, the, it's the first thing and the easiest thing that people should be doing right now, at least whilst things are, you know, the dust is settling and we're still, we're trying to like understand this space a little bit better. But, um, yeah, also, you know, not the first time that they've collaborated, right? Uh, uh, when Dorsey bought Tidal, when that happened, I remember thinking like, yeah, I wish I had a couple billion dollars that I could just pay to make Jay-Z my friend. Um, but no, actually, it was actually a very strategic acquisition. Uh, but yeah. Yeah, I think uh, both of them being involved in the business, I think it's um, both a testament of how um, Jack sees crypto, or more importantly, how he sees Bitcoin being this force for change. And also, um, 
Beyonce's husband doing something that he already does a lot in other areas of his own uh, personal investment in terms of giving back to the community. Um, is this something that we can see as establishing a potential pattern in the crypto industry so the crypto billionaires can um, not only buy their own islands, but also give back to the community? Luca, how do you see this playing out? Yes, I did. And I, I think I didn't probably miss the last uh, second or two, but I think it was uh, clear enough. I mean, I, I think that, so first of all, you know, and I think all of us here, like Guerra, uh, she's, uh, she's dialing in from, from, jo from Johannesburg and Mauricio from Brazil. Uh, and I spend a lot of time in Brazil and in Europe. And I've been traveling quite a bit myself. And I think we, I almost, I'm always shocked by how edu the quality of the education is the ultimate key differentiator in the personal success of a person, of, of, of an individual. It's not financial success, it's personal success. I mean, I think it's uh, is a, it is an asset that trumps everything else and i think uh you can i mean we we like we like to uh worship these stories of a genius mathematician in the middle of uh, in the middle of uh, of india that was coming from zero education but that's an outlier and outliers are pretty useless to take uh, decisions and i think so i myself um i as you know mauricio i I publish my, my research. I have a sub stack that is entirely focused on DeFi. It's called Dirt Roads. And although it costs me a lot of time and sleepless nights to publish, I want to do it because I think the main thing I can do for this industry, apart collaborating to projects and hopefully have some financial and professional benefit out of it, is improve the quality of the research and the information and the education we, we do. I think the quality of the, the discourse in crypto now is very bad. It is an uh, attention seeker at all levels, including at, uh, including at Dorsey's level for his like daily daily activities on Twitter. I think uh, that's bad. It gets to tribal tribe a tribal stance is not helpful for to improve this, uh, it, and is also a very uh, is also not too polite as well. And I think uh, empathy, going back to Guerra's point at the beginning of this podcast, I think is one of the key values we should nourish in life. Uh, so I think I do this, I do my research at a more nerdy math crypto native level, uh, trying, trying to be loyal to that. But, uh, I think we should have this all along the stack. So it's, it's a, it is a great project and I'm expecting, I'm expecting people to realize that what they can do, the best they can do to the community is, is education, especially financial education, because it can be so it's it's an overlay like you know if uh, if you're if you don't have good financial education you don't know exactly how to quantify the phenomena around you 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 start hating people that have more than you and you don't really manage well what you have so i think it's a triple whammy that could be could be achieved with good education so looking forward and I personally would love to have Jay-Z in my uh, running my high school, but that's a different topic, guys. <laughs> Who wouldn't? Yeah, I would rather have the wife, though. But yeah, I, I hear you. Appreciate that. Thank you. Um, so this is the part of the show where we kind of go quickly around up some of the other stories from the month that we didn't have time to cover, but still deserve some uh, attention. So the first one that we're going to cover is PayPal adding new crypto services including transfer to other wallets, meaning they open up for the uh, ecosystem. So the new services allow users to transfer crypto between PayPal and other wallets uh, 
And they come in response to customer demand. Here the customer and you'll get well. Users can now send supported tokens, right now Bitcoin, Ether, Bitcoin Cash, and Litecoin, to external addresses, including those linked to exchange accounts and hardware wallets. They can also use PayPal to send crypto to other users of the app. The move is reminiscent of the way Revolut, the neobank, expanded its own crypto offering in May of last year. PayPal also said in its announcement that it has been granted a full bit license by the New York Department of Financial Services, converted from a conditional version of the license. In April, PayPal CEO Dan Shulman said on a quarterly earnings call that the company would double down on efforts to grow its digital wallet. Earlier this year, the firm said it's exploring the development of a stablecoin backed by the US dollar. So this is one of those entry points that we keep talking about. So we talked about regulation, we talked about education, and one of the, uh, maybe the third item that would grant uh, mainstream access to crypto for the regular folks is UX. And as we all know, payments companies like PayPal have great UX. People are familiar with that. So seeing PayPal expand on this is by no means by chance. This is a strategy. And if the Web 2.5, like our good uh, friend Simon uh, Taylor says, uh, do this well, we'll have billions of people being onboarded in crypto. So yeah, great to see PayPal moving uh, towards that. So uh, we'll move on to the tweet of the week. And this is the last segment today. And we're going to give a shout out to the tweet of the week, um, which comes from Bitfly at etherchain underscore org. And the tweet reads, the Robston network just merged. One of the last test nets until we merge on the Ethereum mainnet. So, guys, what do you think of this? This is this is big, right? This is the change that uh, Ethereum nerds everywhere are waiting for. And Robston, being one of the oldest test nets, has a big part to play in this change. So, Luca, what do you think of this? How how this is going to be a game changer for the Ethereum community? I, I think it is a great demonstration that the roadmap is a solid roadmap, and the the, the team keeps delivering on the roadmap that gives confidence in the best possible time uh, given the uh, the lack of confidence we have in the industry now and I don't know guys if you followed recently but there has been a lot of noise about when this merger will happen because a lot of financial derivatives are built upon that merger so the staked ETH liquid derivative that is produced by Lido in a decentralized way is it, it will be one-to-one -one exchangeable with ETH uh, when the merge happens, I mean, for people not familiar with this, what it means is you need to run a node, you need significant amount of money and tech abilities to run a node, uh, to, to stake your ETH to help support the chain. You, could, you can do it in a, very, in a decentralized way through various protocols. One of those is Lido, where you can simply send, send ETH to a smart contract. You receive a derivative that represents that ETH. The ETH is staked. So when the merge happens, you can stake and stake in a smooth way. So it means that the, that derivative that is accruing, uh, is accruing staking, uh, um, is earning staking yields as, as it lives, can be one-to-one -one exchangeable to it. So it's expected to be pegged to it. But now, now it, it, it is not uh, exchangeable. So a lot, of, a lot of strategies have been built on the fact that these two assets, staked ETH and ETH, move in sync. 
And now this gap is widening because of the lack of confidence in general, or like the, let's say the increasing price of uncertainty. And that is damaging for a lot of people in the industry and who had bad risk management. So that could ease some pressure in, on the industry and it's, uh, it is really needed. So I think it's, uh, I think it, it will be, it will be also tactically important that this happens on, uh, on the timeline that has been already originally planned. And there's a lot to come on Ethereum as it upgrades to be a more scalable um, backbone of the Internet of Value. So we'll keep tabs on this. Uh, we're, we're going to prepare something to be more of an explainer on what the merge is and what it means to the future of Ethereum coming soon. So that wraps up this week's news show. Thank you so much to all of our guests. So where can people find more about you, Guerra? Um, you can find out more about me at 11fs.com. Also bouncing around on Twitter at NotGuerra. Great. Luca, where can people find more about you and track what you're up to? I think Twitter, as always in crypto, is the best is the best source. So you can find me at Luca Prosperi, which is name and surname. Hopefully the non-Italian speakers will get it right. Uh, I also write, as I was mentioning, and publish every every other week uh, Substack, uh, which is dirtroads.substack.com. So hopefully, guys, will, guys, you will find my my articles uh, useful to you. In by no means it is a commercial start Substack that wants to do self promotion. So hopefully, I can be helpful to you guys. Thank you. And you can find me on Twitter at 0xMauricio and also at 11fs.com. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. And if you really, really love it, please leave us a review. It helps us to make it better and helps other people find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11fs or Blockchain Insider or email us at podcasts at 11fs.com. Thank you very much. This is all for today. Stay rare, stay weird. LFG.